Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. And we've got a really special guest today. Joining us is Ulf Lindquist. Welcome to the show, Ulf. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. So, Ulf, we, we've known each other for uh, is about uh, over a decade, I guess now, maybe yeah. <laughs> close to two. It's been it's been a while. But uh, you have a, an amazing background, and I was hoping you could share with our listeners a little bit about you know how you came up and eventually how you got into cybersecurity and what it is exactly that you do now. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be happy to, Brian. So. Um, I'm in the computer science laboratory at SRI International, which is an independent nonprofit research institute uh, where we do world-leading innovation to make the world a better place. Um, I started in Sweden, where I grew up. I went to college there, and I took a class on uh, introduction to cryptography, and I thought that was completely fascinating. I love the sort of the puzzles, the the mind games that comes into uh, you know, protecting data from active adversaries. Um, and then uh, in my uh, last uh, undergraduate year, they had a new class in, in computer security. And I just, I was fascinated by that. I really wanted to work on that. Um, and I, I got the opportunity to get into the PhD program there with the professor who had started the uh, computer security class. And that really changed things for me. It was wonderful to be able to do research in in this area that I'm, I was really interested in. I started with attack analysis, and then I got a chance to spend a summer at SRI and work on intrusion detection research. And that sort of became the second half of my thesis. And as soon as I uh, graduated in Sweden, I moved to California, started working at SRI, and I've been there ever since. Uh, you know, Actually, uh, today is uh, the anniversary of me moving to California 23 years ago. Um, oh, wow. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, what what I love about your uh your story, you know, from academia to to uh, SRI and moving forward is there's been a constant thread of research throughout it. I mean, you you always seem to be on the cutting edge of not the next thing, but the usually the next next thing, which is is really great. And I remember uh boy, it might have been 10 years ago. Uh you and I were chatting about IoT, maybe maybe a little less than 10 years ago. And one of the things that you brought up were automobiles. And you were talking about things that nobody was really thinking about that. I think it was uh, right to repair in some of the some of those devices. Could could you talk a little bit about that? Because it was at the time, you were like the only one talking about this. And then it turned out to be like a huge, a huge topic. Thank you, Brian. I think you're giving me a little too much credit, but I'll take it. Uh, well, I, first of all, generally, I think it's very important to be forward looking. And I make this this point as often as I can. So, you know, my job is to be in research. Uh, it takes time to sort of analyze what the problems, uh, challenges, gaps are, figure out how to get that kind of research funded and started, and then you do the research, and then what we call uh, technology transition, getting the technology from the lab and out for testing, pilot deployments, validation in the real world, and finally into products. And that's a long cycle uh, that can easily take, you know, a 
best case, maybe five years, but more likely 10 years, which means we have to be looking at the problems that are coming at us 10 years from now, um, not just looking at the problems that we have today. Because if that's what we're addressing when we start the research, we're going to be 10 years behind when we finally get something uh, that's, that's working and deployable. So, uh, and the few places that have the charter to have this long-term outlook. And that's what, one of the things I really like about SRI uh, and other research labs that we, we need to be, you know, looking at what's coming down the road. Um, and specifically for, uh, for vehicles, you know, we've seen, of course, enormous d development, uh, not just in self-driving vehicles, but generally connected vehicles. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole right to, to repair issue uh, we need to be able to uh, to have some transparency into what you know these fifty, a hundred, or more computers in a vehicle are actually doing. Uh, you know, a lot of people categorize a, a car these days as a computer with with wheels rather than you know a traditional car. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, Ulf. And, and can you tell us a little bit about <clears throat> the lab itself? And when you test these, do you actually? bring in the vehicles? Where is the lab located? What are the kinds of different, in order to, to do research that forward looking on different types of the attack surface, how do you actually, what does the lab look like for, for our listeners who are trying to visualize that? Yeah. So that's, uh, uh, you know, with vehicles, that's a bit challenging because of the logistics around that. So we haven't uh, done much, you know, on hands work on an entire vehicles, more, more like like parts of it and working with various mm -hmm. partners that have lab facilities. Uh, we do have a an, uh, an fairly uh, large IoT security and privacy laboratory at our headquarters in Menlo Park. Um, I'm based in San Luis Obispo, California, down the, the, the coast right between San Francisco and Los Angeles. We have a smaller lab facility here where we work on, on you know, uh, various kinds of devices used in uh, in industrial settings, in consumer settings, that kind of thing. But we're not, um, you know, we're not as much as a uh, as an underwriter's lab that sort of take in divide devices and and pull them apart. We do some of that, but we're particularly looking at, you know, what's coming down the road when these devices interact with each other in unpredictable ways using physical channels. And a, a classic example that that we recreated in our our lab, it was discovered by, by some related researchers, but we demonstrated that in our lab as well, is you hack into a smart TV and can get that to, through its speaker, issue voice commands that are actually inaudible to humans using ultrasound. But mm. then that gets picked up by a, a device like a, a, a Amazon Echo or a Google Home device or Siri and gets interpreted as if it was a human speaking it. You're sitting there in the room, you can't hear that this is going on, but your TV is actually telling your Alexa to do something. I think that's uh, it's a fascinating example of unforeseen interaction and how you know attackers can abuse these devices in, in ways that, that were never really anticipated. That, that's, that's amazing. I, I love that story because it's, it's just out there. Uh, most people wouldn't think of that as a line of attack. And I remember a few years ago, it might have been about uh, eight or nine years ago, there were some uh, researchers at a university that had found a way to, and they wrote an algorithm that if they were able to record somebody typing on their keyboard based on, you know, pattern analysis and which keys are used, you know, most commonly and what's the space bar sound like and all that, they were able to actually 
uh, basically snoop on somebody just hearing them type on their keyboard, which I thought was was really, really cool. It's not like they make different sounds, but just the algorithms and the pattern discovery, anomaly detection, all that type of thing kind of come into play. And you just see these really interesting use cases. Uh, but that that went with, with the sound coming from your speakers. That's just crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I remember um, I was I was with you in your office uh, in the Bay Area before you had moved down to slow. And uh, you, your desk was just covered with different types of IoT devices, stuff you'd see in the enterprise, stuff you'd see on the consumer level, a pretty good mix. Uh, I'm wondering what what types of things do you have in your lab today? What kind of uh, maybe newfangled uh, IoT devices are you working with right now? So uh, one challenge is that, that some of the, the clients we work for don't want us to uh, to talk about what devices we're, <laughs> we're looking at. But I think one fascinating one we, we looked at a, a couple of years back was this uh, neurostimulator device, basically uh, looking like the kind of headphones I'm wearing now, but also had electrodes that go on to, you know, that touch your scalp. And the whole idea between these types of devices was to, you know, stimulate various parts of your brain with electricity. And it was used by athletes who wanted to, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get better movement in their uh, throwing arm, that kind of thing. Uh, and of course, you know, we were thinking, hmm, what if you hack into this thing? Can you actually zap someone's head by, you know, greatly increasing the, the voltage uh, or current in this thing? So we set out with an interesting experiment. We uh, outfitted a styrofoam head with with some uh, electric sensors and went at it. And uh, uh, we were able to... Uh, did you melt the, the head the, off? Was there a melted styrofoam <laughs> head in your office? <laughs> we were sort of, you know, hoping for that for effect, but didn't quite get there. No sparks flying, but we did manage to double the voltage, I think, which uh, oh, was wow. certainly concerning. Uh, but things like that. And this sort of really brings us to, you know, one reason why we are passionate about this area and making sure to secure these kinds of systems because they interact with the physical world. A lot of IoT devices are, are mm-hmm. sensors which you know could also be serious because they, the sensor data is used to make decisions, and if you affect the sensor data, you can you can have other effects. But but there are devices that actually have that are actuators that have a direct effect on something physical, whether they you know control the the, the brakes in your your vehicle or if it's this this thing that's actually electrodes on on your head or if it's a therapeutic device or if it's uh, you know perform some other critical function. This is where you know it gets really important that these devices are secured against you know malicious manipulation. Yeah, and we call it uh we refer to the entire area as XIOT uh all, all, mostly because they're you know and we estimate and there are various estimates but the estimates we look at up, upwards of 50 billion or more of these connected devices and from an XIOT perspective that's extended Internet of Things, which includes, you know, enterprise IoT devices, you know, printers, VoIP phones, cameras, all, all the things you think of. Uh, network uh, connected devices like wireless access points and switches and load balancers and, you know, all those kinds of things, as well as, as you mentioned, some classic cyber physical systems. And Gartner calls it cyber physical, right, for the reason you mentioned, things like PLCs and HMIs and SCADA devices and robotics and all those kinds of things. Um, and so it's very broad, it's very big, and it encompasses a lot of devices, many of them, which, you know, we'll probably cover today are, you know, very vulnerable and then not really looked at and kind of, uh, you know, not, not too, 
too, considered too terribly much. Uh, but when you think of the span of those, does that, how do you grasp that from a research perspective, that the span of, and the amount of those devices, how do you even right. grasp I mean, that? From unfortunately, we don't have unlimited resources. So we have to, you know, pick and choose um, things. And uh, I should mention, you know, at SRI, we uh, work for, for clients, uh, often government clients, uh, the agencies within the Department of, Fen of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. uh, National Science Foundation, uh, and others. So, and we also work for commercial companies. So that sort of directs some of the priorities in terms of what we're looking at, because as, as fun as it is to do research, we need to get that, that funding from somewhere as well. So that, mm -hmm. that helps with the, with the directions. But we're also, um, as I mentioned before, we try to do, you know, this, this really, uh, forward looking, um, approach where we see, you know, okay, so what, what's going to be coming? What's going to be important some years from now? Um, and of course, one of those things is with, uh, with devices getting smaller and smaller, uh, you can imagine a lot of implanted sensors in the body, mm. uh, that, you know, could actually measure things in your joints, in your blood vessels and so forth. Um, and that's, you know, obviously an, an area of, of concern because suddenly the technology gets very personal when it's actually implanted in, in your body. Uh, we also have a lot of interest in um, aerospace related applications, whether it's uh, drones, swarms of drones, or going further away from the surface of the earth into space. Uh, you know, there's a lot of growth in, um, in space right now, especially mm -hmm. with these large constellation low orbit uh, arrangements that can provide a lot of new capabilities for, you know, for other applications, uh, high precision uh, navigation and timing, uh, ubiquitous uh, connectivity, uh, all those kinds of things. So uh, some people even talk about an internet of space things. So mm. that's certainly an area of high interest. Yeah. I mean, a satellite's an IoT device. It just happens to be moving really, really fast. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's right. But you also, know when when you were <laughs> when you were talking about the um, you know increasing the voltage uh, times two on the styrofoam head and and the swarms of drones, it reminded me uh, last year I was at a, a dinner with some folks from the uh, University of California school system. So I, I think mo most of our listeners know the UC system is made up of all the University of California uh, schools. So you've got you know Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Diego, Irvine, on and on. And a couple issues that they had is they have, uh, let's take the football team, for example. Um, they have, you know, very special nutrition and, and dietary, you know, uh, regimens that they have to follow. And they have these, basically these protein shake machines that looks like a, a traditional soda machine, but it's specific to each individual player and their needs. Like uh, the quarterback might have a gluten allergy and the defensive end might need extra you know, vitamin C or something. And everything's very carefully measured and it's customized for the individual. And there was a fear that before the big game, you know, the, the, the person that has a allergy to whey just drank a whole, whole shake full of whey or something like that. And now they, they can't perform. And it's just, it, it's, it's these, it's these edge use cases. If we kind of think it come at it from a cybersecurity perspective, but we start thinking about how these devices are used um, and they're interacting with the individual, you see, it really has a profound impact and can impact, you know, human safety health. I mean, some, in that case, mm -hmm. it, you could potentially even kill somebody, right? If they're drinking something they're allergic to. Uh, 
And the other one they were talking about were drones and this whole idea of they've got a whole bunch of people at a, a big football game. You could have, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people there. And there's a swarm of drones that if each drone is connected to some type of weaponized aerosol spray or some other kind of apocalyptic idea, you know, how do you deal with that? What's the, what, you know, what do you do to address that? Is it a giant net? Is it other drones to take out these drones? Is it some some type of radio control frequency, you know, net or something like that? And these aren't questions that I think most people uh, considered. You probably did, but most people didn't consider just a few years ago. So all that to say this, what is that what are some of those, you know, apocalyptic use cases or, you know, what's the next mm. drone or, or poison shake machine idea that you see oh, that's boy. maybe not here right now, but coming around the corner? Yeah, I'm not sure I want to, uh, you know, give the bad guys <laughs> more ideas than they already have. But, you know, I think I'll speak in more general terms, you know, any technology use, you know, can be misused, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure that we think that way. And I think for anyone who's actually been personally targeted by attackers, you know, when you actually see that they're adapting to what you're doing in your organization, they might impersonate your your boss or your coworker to to try to do some phishing. When you realize that, you know, they're actually looking at you, this is not just a broad attack, they're coming after you, you know, imagine if that was in the physical world or that they mm -hmm. were messing with a system that you depend on, whether it is your your protein shake maker or your car or whatever that is. That gets pretty scary pretty quickly. Um, and then, you know, an area that I want to mention that we've started to look into is quantum computing. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that's not exactly uh, IoT, but it's an it's a it's an out there, it's an emerging area. It's, you know, it's going to be coming at some point. It's not really uh, practical yet, but one can also imagine uh, when when com quantum computers do become available, they can do much more accurate simulations of physics and materials and chemistry. Uh, and of course, the, the issue that we're worried about in cybersecurity, that they could easily break the encryption that we're using today. You can imagine a lot of nefarious uses of that, and that, therefore it's it's important to, to uh, you know, monitor that and come up with, with ways to ensure that those kinds of very powerful systems can't be misused. So I think I'll, I'll leave it at that and not invent new, you know, terrible ideas on the fly. Here. <laughs> leave, leave Hollywood for that. What, what about, Alpha? I mean, is there a sense, do you, do you look at kind of vectors that are happening today to kind of give you insight to what might happen in the future. So for example, we talked about drones, right? And and you've seen, you know, ripping from the headlines, we've seen recent stories of hackers leveraging drones and you know, they they're they're loaded up with incredibly sophisticated equipment, including a Raspberry Pi and other things. And, they, and then they they'll they'll land these drones somewhere near you know, a building or a roof and they'll hack into, you know, they'll, they'll proceed to kind of attack, uh, from that, that drone, right? So you're seeing some ways that drones are being used as a vector for attack, leveraging IOT devices. D does, are those things you look at that maybe help you see what might happen in the future? Or are you just so far ahead that, you know, the, the vectors of today hardly even matter much? And uh, no, I think what we're seeing is a convergence of various technologies, right? There are mm -hmm. things that are developed separately, but some creative people, whether they're doing it for, for good or for bad, can put together uh, and, you know, make it work together. The drones 
work well because of you know miniaturization of of uh, of electronics, the availability of navigation services, um, you know, advancements on the software side in in AI and autonomy sensors, all those kinds of things. You know, you might be able, you might be running your drone through you know virtual reality headsets. as all the development in in uh, extended reality there as well. So all of those things coming together, which can do great things, but as we've seen, you know, used with, with some creativity in the current war in Ukraine, um, you know, strapping, you know, explosives, bombs to the to the drones and uh, use, you know, civilian commercial grade drones as as mm-hmm. weapons and quite effectively. So I think we need to, again, you know, look at the, the convergence of things, look at, you know, how things are being used creatively, you know, both for to do great things but also how they could be used, uh, uh, you know, for for bad purposes. So I think that's um, mm-hmm. that's the the view of what could be coming on the threat side. Yeah, you know, we should never underestimate the you know the organization, the creativity, the patience of some of the adversaries out there. Uh, right. These are most often not you know stupid criminals, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a topic that's been coming up a lot, and I'm wondering if this is crossing your radar, is, you know, smart buildings, smart ships, which are pretty much like smart buildings, but they float, uh, smart cities. And and when people say that what that really boils down to are like building management systems or building automation systems, BMS or, or BAS. Uh, I was recently in Krakow, Poland. I was speaking at one of the B-sides there. And the BMS and BAS systems were coming up a lot. There was a lot of talks about it. There was a lot of discussion after the fact in the hallways. People were really focusing on this. And it was it, it ran across everything from general building automation and lighting and HVAC and access controls and, and you know, fire suppression systems and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, is that something that I'm wondering, are your clients interested in that and, and having you and, and the team investigate that? Or is that something that you personally have looked into and, and started analyzing? Yeah, we've looked a little bit into building management systems. There's, of course, a great interest into that from a, you know, um, energy savings uh, sort of, uh, you know, green energy uh, renewables perspective. If you can really you know, control the building's energy usage uh, much more fine-grained than we have today. Of course, there's energy savings to be made. And you can look at this concept of smart cities where uh, various integrated IoT-based systems can sense, you know, today we got, you know, this many commuters coming in on the roads on mass transit. This is the time when we need to start, you know, preheat or pre-cool the building and be prepared. Uh, which might be even more important when you have a more, um, shall we say, unpredictable flow with more people working from home at uh, you know part of the week, that kind of thing. So lots of gains to be made there. But then, of course, you you can look at you know privacy issues if um, the you know building management system owned by the employer knows that you know Steve has now spent you know twenty minutes in the break room and another twenty minutes in the bathroom. You know, does that play into uh you know decisions made by the employer or not there's a lot of privacy issues go- going into that and then of course the security issues and we've probably seen hollywood scenarios but they're not too far-fetched where imagine a massive cyber attack on a data center and at the same time 
you know, the, the doors are inaccessible. The support staff can't even get into the data center to turn mm-hmm. things off. Uh, so, um, again, lots of uh, use cases where we have to, you know, look through both the, you know, possibly, you know, questionable use of seemingly good technologies and then the outright bad use of those. Mm. And Ulf, do you guys, do you, I mean, obviously, as you said, you've got specific clients who are funding your research. Is any of your research available for just general enterprises and others to read or or is it very specific for them? Is it public in any way? How does that, how does that work when you actually publish research? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. We, uh, um, we definitely publish publicly in conferences, uh, on websites, et cetera, and so forth, our, our research to the extent that we can. And even when we do proprietary work for specific clients, we always try to carve out, uh, the more general findings and make sure that we get permission to, to publish that to, you know, inform the world and bring, you know, the, the, the science further. This is a very important part in, in scientific research that we can, we can actually share a uh, result with others and, and others can build on those ideas and we can build on their ideas and move further. Mm-hmm. We participate in, in public conferences uh, and so forth. So to the extent we can, we, we certainly do, uh, you know, they, we, uh, uh, our publications are, are available in, in through Google searches uh, and in, in scientific forums and, and so forth. So we, we always try to, to spread the knowledge as much as we can. Of course, some work is, uh, is more sensitive or proprietary than, than others. And when you're in the area of security, that tends to relate to, to things like specific vulnerabilities and, and so forth. But, but we always try to, to share as, as much as we can. That's part of our mission. Of, let's switch a little bit to attack types. And when we're talking to our customers about XIoT and they come back and they tell us what's happened to them or what they're most concerned about, it kind of falls into three general categories um, for XIoT. It's, it's one, it's attacks that impact the physical world. And we've touched on a few of those things. So impacting a fire suppression system or locking or unlocking a door, using a security camera to spy on somebody with audio and video, things that have like physical world you know, ramifications. The other one are these opportunistic attacks, if you will. These are things like the Mirai botnet from back in 2016, where I'm just like, hey, it's 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 going around. You know, you're, you're saying, hey, is, there, is this a camera? Does it have Telnet open? Does it have the default password? Boom, I'm going to upload some malware. I'm going to add you to a botnet. And, you know, fast forward a couple days, a couple weeks, now I've got this massive botnet I can use for DDoS, malware distribution, phishing campaigns, what have you. So those are those opportunistic ones. And then the big one that's really been hitting hard, and this was highlighted in, in some Mandiant research called Quiet Exit, which is where attackers will use traditional methods to get in onto an IT device, such as a phishing campaign. And they target you, they get on your laptop. But once they're on the laptop, they very quickly look for an XIoT device, a network-attached storage, a wireless access point, voice over IP, phone printer, so on and so forth, because they know they can maintain persistence and they can evade detection there. And once there, they use that to attack IT assets, sniff traffic, exfiltrate sensitive data, usually over ICMP or some other protocol. Uh, but they're essentially using it to attack the IT network. And what we're seeing is, yes, people get the physical world attacks. They, they know that's a problem. The opportunistic stuff like botnets, it's a problem for XIoT, it's a problem for IoT. But these, these new attacks that get in through IT hide 
in XIOT, and for sometimes years they're hiding because no one's paying attention, and the attack surface is huge because why install on one printer when you can install on 10,000 printers because they've all got default passwords or vulnerabilities that could be exploited easily, and then they're attacking your IT infrastructure. That's the one that our customers are really, really concerned about, and I'm just wondering from, from your side and your research, is that kind of the leading um, concern? Is it those pivot attacks that could affect the IT side, or is it still more the physical world or those opportunistic bits? Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't really have the data to, like like the others you quoted, that to sort of see what's most prevalent. Uh, but in terms of um, you know how to manage that kind of issue, I think we really have to accept that you know anything, any device today is a networked computer, right? Even a, a cable can have processing in it, you know, in the, the plugs and so forth. And we have to, you know, treat it accordingly because we, you know, humans tend to do abstractions and simplify things. You know, you see something that looks like a computer, that's a computer, right? But they may not think that the, the copier, the printer, the thermostat, the cable are also computer devices and should be treated as such. And if they're computer devices with computing capabilities, some persistent memory, networking, you know, of course they can be used for exactly what you described for an at attacker to gain a foothold uh, and and a persistence. And and then you can never sort of really, you know, get rid of the attacker in your network if you can't, you know, control and monitor these devices and, and clean them out as needed. Um, I think that's that's a that's a great challenge, and you know there are things generally related to the whole IoT field that applies here. Where you know we got these huge numbers of devices. You know they're all different. They're heterogeneous, and you know in the sense we only have to worry about a couple of desktop or laptop operating systems, or even for mobile devices. But for IoT devices, there's so many different uh, systems and configurations. Uh, the devices move around. Uh, they have long lifetimes, they get deployed and sometimes forgotten and they just hang around your network. So it's very important to be able to to manage these devices, to be able to uh, you know, see what you have on your, your network, what they're running, uh, how they're behaving, all those kinds of things. So, so yeah, great concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you look, I mean, you're looking very, very far ahead, Alf, and we've talked about just the the amazing numbers of these devices, billions of them. And, and, you know, there's stats that say there's every minute, there's hundreds more getting connected to the, to the network every, every minute of every day. And it's just, it's really growing, but yet there's a, I mean, if you ask the common person on the street, what's IOT, they probably won't be able to tell you what internet of things, what's that. Although they know very much, if you tell them the kind of devices they have, then it, then it, and then it clicks. Um, and the enterprise much more aware of it, but as we've talked about, still don't really consider, don't don't really quite think about things like, you know, when we see a camera, we see a Linux server, right? Uh, they don't think of it that way. Um, you know, all of these devices, do you think there will catch up? Um, when will kind of the world, both on the enterprise side and the kind of consumer side, kind of begin to really understand the magnitude of the number of devices what they're doing and and you know the 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 necessity the necessity to kind of secure them is that do you see that kind of happening eventually and kind of when because I know you're looking pretty far ahead 
Yeah, it's uh, the hardest thing is to to predict uh, human behavior, but mm -hmm. um, I think it really helps with some concrete demonstrations. Uh, if we look back at uh, you know the the vehicle security, uh, we mm -hmm. had uh, these two hackers, uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek, and and before them some some folks at uh, UC San Diego and and other places that did some very tangible demonstrations of okay, let's. We're going to hack a car and we're going to show you what you can do. Um, and that really, I think, opened the eyes for you know both professionals and the public of, oh, yeah, you know, a car is actually a hackable computer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, we can see some of that demonstrations both both publicly and within companies will help people understand, uh, you know, that, you know, as you said, you know, your your little camera is actually a Linux server just like the one that that looks like a traditional computer so mm -hmm. i i think that will help some but it also the miniaturization of devices makes it harder right how mm. can you even think that a, a cable that looks just like a connector also has a computer in it so mm -hmm. we're not making it easier for uh, for the humans here by by all you know making things smaller and smaller and smaller and of course the size of a of a camera today could be you know almost invisible uh, and that's that makes it you know harder to conceptualize this for for people. Right. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I don't have any really good answers there, other than you know for the the people who who manage and deploy these systems to give them uh, the right tools and information to be able to uh, to control this and make the right decisions. Yeah, interesting. It comes back to research in some instances, doesn't it? To demonstrate this, um, it's you know, people, organizations like yours, companies like ours doing doing research that can demonstrate the potential of this. And it sounds like that's the way people pay attention and actually show them. Um, and it's interesting. It kind of comes back to, um, you know, conducting research and actually showing that to to the world so they can understand the potential, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, there's, I, great, I, there's great value in show and tell, <laughs> for mm -hmm. sure. Well, well, I think Ulf, Ulf, you said it a few times, and John, you as well, that you know, if you if you show somebody a picture of a server and a picture of a a printer, a voice over IP phone, a security camera, and a door lock, and you say which one of these is running Linux, uh, most of them will probably default to the server, right? And they don't realize that hey, all of these devices are, and some are running Android or BSD, and on the OT side, VX works, and there's certainly a few different flavors, but um, they're these are popular operating systems. And a lot of the times I actually ran across in our, in our own lab that we have at Phosphorus, uh, a security camera that was more powerful than my laptop. It had more storage, it had more RAM, it had better. In, in fact, I would like it to be my laptop, uh, but it was it was a very <laughs> powerful Linux server, but it was just purpose built to do, it was, I believe it was running Ubuntu, but I might be wrong, but uh, it just happened to be purpose built. And it had, its version of Linux was was several years old, so it was loaded with vulnerabilities and it had all sorts of problems, but that's what it was. So you could log into it, you could SSH into it, you could uh, FTP, there was, it was even running TFTP, um, HTTP, HTTPS, it was, you know, wired and wireless and it had everything opened and these are powerful devices. And then 
I think about that, and I think about what you just said, Ulf, about, you know, the miniaturization of these devices. And sometimes it might just be on a cable or, you know, it might be something that you it's hard to even see with the naked eye at, at some point and probably exists today, especially for some of the, the biohacking uh, items out there. It just really kind of lays out the importance of, you know, the term attack surface management takes on a whole new level when you start considering these types of devices and their capabilities beyond what we've traditionally looked at from an IT sec perspective, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. And I should also mention that, you know, we're working on on technologies to, you know, do more of building security in from the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. which has always been a challenge, but uh, there are, you know, technologies for actually building more high assurance, trusted systems. Uh, it tends to take more time cost a little bit more, uh, but there are technologies like uh, I need to mention something called Cherry. Uh, it's a uh, capability-based architecture that SRI has developed together with University of Cambridge in the UK, um, which is a fundamental new way to to design a computer architecture. Um, and uh, this is now actually being adopted by ARM, uh, and they have uh, shipped uh, prototype processors where you can can experiment with this this new type of architecture where uh, that basically eliminates a lot of the uh, memory safety issues for example those types of attacks and there are other other methods other technologies to you know eliminate whole classes of attacks so you know on the bright side we talked a lot about about the you know vulnerabilities and bad things that could happen but there are ways to to design systems that will significantly raise uh, the bar and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, provide a lot better security. So we're, of course, you know, developing methods like that for future systems as well. And do you think, Ulf, that, that those types of, um, you know, guidance and uh, methods, will it make its way into policy? Do you touch on that? Do you see that at all? So, I mean, you, you look in the EU, they've got some starting to have more on the consumer side, but starting to require you know, actual manufacturers to try to think about security, things like this. Is is there a policy side that you see here with some of this for manufacturers, for example? Yes, I think there's there's an important uh, policy side. Uh, uh, we don't work that much directly on policy things, but we we, uh, we communicate with uh, people who do that. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen some you know improvements lately. Uh, it's a uh, you know California legislation, uh, but, you know requiring some minimum security for new IoT devices sold here in California. Mm-hmm. You know not having default passwords, that kind of thing. Um, there's uh, a standard called Matter uh, that has to do with interoperability between devices, but also security. There's a very recent effort uh, coming out of the White House on uh, security labeling for IoT devices. All those things. Uh, things we've argued for for a long time are now starting to to happen. It's you know too early to to see you know what kind of impact that will have, but at least that's moving in the right direction uh, because you you have these simple problems for consumers in particular, but for business users as well. If I go out and buy you know new type of IoT device to put into my network, how do I even know what that's going to do for security? You know how do I know? You know what with what kind of rigor this device was was developed you know how's that going to change my security posture when i introduce it into my network is going to make things better worse or the same those things are just really really difficult for you know even knowledgeable people to to figure out um so we're, we're hoping to see some improvements there and some you know some minimum 
requirements for for security would would certainly be helpful on the policy side i think yeah well if we could we could literally continue talking for hours and hours about this dear what you've done on the research side is just so fascinating but uh before we close out here i will ask you uh one last question and i this this i'm really interested in your response because you come at this from a researcher's perspective but for those of our listeners that uh, are working in large enterprise and, and government organizations, and they're concerned about XIOT security, um, any any kinds of words of advice for them, and you know whether it's thought process or approaches or things like that that you can can leave them with. Yeah, that that's a challenging one, of course. I mean, it's sort of the the same advice as for a lot of other things. Try to make sure your systems can be updated. Uh, this is a big challenge because we know vulnerabilities are inevitable. They will be discovered after some time in all kinds of systems. Make sure that you're, you can actually, uh, you know, that there are ways to update your systems and figure out what to do if the manufacturer stops supporting those devices that you depend upon. Uh, and one thing we don't talk enough about is sort of the, you know, the phasing out, uh, end of life for IoT devices. We call it, uh, you know, obsolescence, sunsetting. That kind of thing, uh, you know. Figure out what is your planned lifetime for this system or device. Uh, you know, how can you safely, uh, securely, gracefully decommission it once its time its time is up? Can you, you know, the data that you collected can that be, you know, safely transferred to your your new system? All those kinds of things, because we we tend to deploy things and then you know to some extent forget about them and not really think through the whole life cycle. Um, and then it's the whole issue of, you know, transparency in devices. If you have a choice between vendors and some vendors actually tell you exactly how, how they protect your data, what they do with the data, how they, you know, enable you to secure your devices against intrusions versus the ones who just say, oh, this is easy to deploy, just push the button and don't worry about it. You know, yep. it might be better to trust the ones who actually tell you what they're doing. Um, that's, that's the best I've got at this point. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's fantastic uh, advice, Ulf, and, and it's been wonderful to have you. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great that you could join us. So, again, thanks, Brian, our host, and, uh, and Ulf, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos. See you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast. Podcast.